Welcome to another episode of The Roundtable, where a group of teenagers discuss the important socio-political issues of the day and pretend to know what we're talking about. I'm the host, Jason, and I'm joined today by my comrades, Harry, Harry, and Andrew. Today's discussion will center around limitations on free speech. Before we get into it, however, let's first go over some background. Free speech is an ideal fundamental to not just American democracy, but Western liberalism itself. The titans of the Enlightenment, Locke, Montesquieu, Rousseau, Descartes, Spinoza, each articulated their conviction that the free expression of the individual, unconstrained by the state, would bring about a new golden age of logic and progress. In 1789, such principles were enshrined as the very first amendment to the Constitution of the United States. As the nation grew and evolved, however, it soon became apparent that some exceptions to the rule were necessary. In 1919, the court ruled that pamphlets advocating resistance to the draft were unconstitutional in Shankbury, United States. Uh, Justice uh, Wendell Holmes, uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. wrote in his now famous decision that the situation was akin to yelling fire in a crowded theater, advocating for a crime with a clear and present danger of success. In 1969, however, this restriction was weakened by the decision in Brandenburg v. Ohio, where the Supreme Court ruled that a local KKK rally that advocated for quote-unquote vengeance against Jews and African Americans was constitutionally protected because it did not incite imminent lawless action. In 1942, <clears throat> a similar decision in Chapslinski v. New Hampshire held that speech is not protected if it is fat in words defined as either a threat of bodily harm or provoking a fight. Finally, in 1974, the court ruled in Gertz v. Robert Welts, Inc. that there was no value in false statements of fact. Of course, the court has struggled greatly ever since with defining such a vague injunction, but has generally agreed that libel, slander, and false statements made under threat or mental illness are not protected. As the a nation is increasingly racked by a resurgence of extremist elements and continues to struggle with discrimination and xenophobia, a number of proposals have been put forth as to further regulations upon free speech. Indeed, a number of other countries have long had such measures. Nations such as South Africa, Rwanda, and Germany see it as a way to confront their dark past, while others, including Canada, Britain, and France, impose such legislation to promote social harmony and acceptance. When Nazis exclaim Heil on American soil, when hateful rhetoric leveled at minorities and the LGBTQ community is broadcasted across popular media and the internet, is it still reasonable to uphold free speech in these cases? That is the question we will try to answer today. So, should there be legislation against hate speech in the United States? Harry, you want to go first? Um, sure. I will, I'll be fully honest with you, though. I think I'm going to probably broaden the discussion a bit uh, later on. But first and foremost, I want to say clearly and unequivocally here that I do believe that there should be specific legislation against hate speech. I want to take the example of the Sieg Heil. There is nothing beneficial about performing the Sieg Heil and yelling. All you are doing is broadcasting that you are racist and that you want to intimidate minorities. So... There is no positive gain. There's no benefit to society that that hate speech is performed. That doesn't necessarily mean that it should that speech shouldn't be performed just because it doesn't have a positive benefit towards society. I mean, me saying good morning to my dog isn't going to benefit society, but there's a key difference. Free speech doesn't just occur in a vacuum. 
because it's the same thing as driving your car. Just as if I wanted complete, unrestricted, individual freedom to drive my car on sidewalks, through lobbies, theoretically speaking, that would be what I would, uh, that would be my personal unrestricted freedom. However, my speech and my driving affect other people. Just as I have to stay in my lane so other people can drive safely, if you broadcast that you are racist and broadcast hateful rhetoric, what you are doing is you are suppressing the free speech of the people who you are attacking. If I say I hate all black people, then black people will inevitably be less likely to come onto the forums I am on, to talk to me, and to talk up in public spaces where I already am. So the truth is that hate speech is not only not beneficial, it is actively harmful and suppresses the free speech of others. So when it comes down to it, I, society has to make a choice. The free speech of racists performing Nazi salutes, or the free speech of minorities who feel attacked. And I pre feel pretty comfortable in saying that I'm firmly on the side of those minorities. Right, and I just have one comment about that is, that sounds pretty good in principle. It's uh, defending those who are oppressed against the oppressors, against uh, bigots, against racists. But the problem is, how would such a measure be implemented? How would you define a public space? Where, uh, obviously, we don't want uh, Nazi salutes being conducted anywhere, but how would you, how would any legislation ban such actions without posing concerns of censorship or severe limitations upon free speech Okay, so I want to I ask you a simple question. First and foremost, I've proposed a pretty simple principle, that if you are simply regurgitating, for example, a Nazi salute, you are, making, you, are not, you are not only doing nothing to benefit society, but only hurting society by suppressing the speech of others. I'm curious yes. what you would specifically... So you seem to state that there's a gray area, but I'm pretty comfortable in saying um, the hate speech law I'm talking about is specifically banning things like doing the Sea Heil. So what is a gray area that you would specifically name in which censorship would occur as a result of a policy that banned, you know, salutes such as the Sea Heil? Well, here come problem. Uh, one, is this measure um, limited to public spaces? And if in that case, what defines a public space? This is an interesting question here. And I think the first thing that has to be noted is that regardless of what you want to say and what you want to do, it's an unenforceable law in private. I'm not in favor of a surveillance state, and as such, I mean, if someone wants to spout racist rhetoric and do the Nazis and do the Sea Heil in the privacy of their own home, that's a despicable act, but it's not an act I believe the government should be able to surveil them to make sure they're not doing. So as such, it's really only enforceable in public spaces. But furthermore, I think one of the key differences and one of the reasons why hate speech law needs to be updated so, so desperately nowadays is that our definition of public spaces remains very antiquated. It's grounded in the idea that if some crazy guy is yelling in the park, he shouldn't be allowed to scream at random passerbys that they're, you know, N-words and, and so on and so forth. But the truth is that public spaces have dramatically expanded to the point where we have a situation in which if you go online and you post, I don't know, say on Twitter that you, you know, threatening black people, that is something that is a public space. That is something that they will experience and that they will see and that other people will see and may take inspiration from. So I think broad laws about, say, for example, regurgitating Nazi rhetoric and saying things like, you know, I don't know, repeating Nazi slogans, you know, posting images of Nazi paraphernalia, these are things that are very clearly attacking minorities. And yet, if you define public spaces so restrictively as only where you can explicitly see that someone is being victimized in the picture, then you end up having a very ineffective law. So what I'm saying here is that, again, I'm not here to say that 
every single instance of controversial speech should be banned, but that we don't owe these people complete and total freedom to say whatever they want freedom uh, with freedom of consequences, because that is what we've been giving. Uh, that's what we've been giving racists and people spewing hateful rhetoric so far. So let's take, for example, Nazis on the Internet. If I go onto Reddit and I post something noxious, not only am I free to say that, I'm free from the consequences of that. I'm not held accountable for saying what I am saying. And so all I've done is hurt someone who is a minority and I'm not and I'm free of consequences. So what I'm here is not to restrict speech, but to apply consequences to that speech and say, if you're going to, you know, act like a Nazi, I don't think the law owes you all that, you know, freedom of speech with freedom of consequences. But but how how would you enforce that, especially online, when the government or let's say the these huge platforms such as 4chan, Twitter, Reddit, how would they be able to enforce that specific hate speech that you are against? I think you make a, you bring up an absolutely excellent point, which is that again, no measure is going to be 100% efficient, but I still maintain that it's not actually as difficult as often made, as it's often made out to be. The first and foremost, the first thing that any platform, major platform, can do and should do is to ban accounts that do these things. Neo Nazis don't deserve to have a platform on Twitter, on Facebook, anywhere. right? But here's the problem: if this was going to be government legislation, you, you, I can't possibly envision an army of moderators large enough, uh, hired by the government to monitor what possibly is thousands of internet platforms. And the so you see, that's where, that no, 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 but see, that's where I want to draw a line here, quite clearly. Government hate speech should be restricted to what can be easily proven. But at the end of the day, when it comes to social media, the truth is that the government is not an effective tool here. The government is essentially, in essence, it's a, you know, it's a sledgehammer. And right. what we're doing here is performing something more like a precise surgery. And in this case, it is, it is incumbent on the companies to deplatform these racists, right. yeah, not I, on the government. And I understand what you're saying, Harry, but the problem with that is that you, what you're proposing is obviously you know, a, a governmental change uh, in protections of the First Amendment. And the problem with that is that the, the people who are going to best enforce this change would be the, the specific companies that are in control of their own forums. But the right. government exactly. so can't they, these control companies should them. change. Right. Well, so what I'm, so I'm saying that, first of all, the government should heavily incentivize these companies to restrict hate speech. But moreover, that any plan has to take part with the cooperation of these companies. So what I'm assuming here is that I not only have broad governmental cooperation, but that these companies are willing, are ready and willing to work with me for my plan. Because it's frankly ridiculous to propose any kind of anti-racist plan that you know restricts hateful speech or stops hateful speech without the cooperation of the companies that control much of the communication that occurs in the modern day. Right. So but I'm assuming, here, Harry. That here's they're... the thing: what incentives could we possibly provide to companies to get them to? Because I don't think you could just fiat corporate cooperation. Because what we've seen is that when you ban, say, uh, offensive subreddit on. Those people will just move to 4chan, and if 4chan gives them thank you, thank you, Jason. See what you're saying is what I needed you to say because that's that's what I'm saying here. The truth is, Jason, that I have always been 100 percent comfortable. Will they? Will the crazies? Will the neo Nazis find their new platform? Sure, they've got their new. I think what is it called, like Parler or something. But the truth is, people don't go to Parler. People go to Twitter. So it's more important that normal people 
do not have to go through what you know their their racist rhetoric. If there will always be in the internet age a platform where they can run to. But what I'm saying is that in a massive platform where millions, if not you know hundreds of millions of people go on it every day, we have to keep them off of it. So deplatforming is never going to be 100%. You will never kick someone off the entire internet. But I'm completely comfortable, well, I'm not completely comfortable, but I'm much more comfortable with a neo-Nazi on Parler or 8chan than right, I am with a neo-Nazi on here, Twitter. Here's the thing. The reason why Twitter and Reddit and these sites have been, uh, how do I say it, unwilling to sometimes ban these noxious elements is because they provide business. They provide interaction. They are customers. And so who... Uh, whatever whatever these laws would propose, you would have to offer them incentive in account for this law's business. You Let's also, you also a... Oh, go ahead, Harry. Oh, no, you can go ahead, Andrew. Okay, well, what I, <clears throat> what I was going to say is that uh, even though many of these people... Uh, I, 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 know you're ta I know you're taking uh, the example of neo-Nazis specifically, but I'm talking just a little more broadly of really anybody who is racist, uh, doesn't matter what race or ethnicity they are, uh, the individual doing it, what you, what you, what you got to realize is that silencing these people and silencing this particular uh, type of rhetoric, what it could lead to in the future is the silencing of, let's say, somebody tries to point out that hey, a certain percentage of this race does a certain percentage of the crime and use that as evidence for an argument, that m silencing the original actual racist might lead, might open the door to one of these big companies silencing the person who's just citing stats uh, be because, and you know, in their mind, it's association. I completely well, agree with you that, you know, these, p these people spouting this terrible stuff are awful people and who don't really deserve to be listened to but silencing them could lead to massive consequences down the line of people just trying do... to cancel and block people who just disagree with them. I think we so need I to think what you're this as two separate scenarios. So you know, I would like to engage with Andrew's I argument mean... because I think he he brings right. up a very important point. One of the most important points in indeed the development of you know the Enlightenment era of free discussion and free speech. The idea you know Voltaire's Voltaire's word that uh, words that I may not agree with what you have to say, but I will fight to the death for your right to say it. And I think that you bring up an interesting point, Andrew. However, I would like to reiterate that. The truth is that you cannot look at this perspective as we all have free speech or none of us have free speech. Because the truth is that when you let that racist speak, you are letting them use their free speech to the exclusion of minorities who they are driving away and making feel unwelcome. The truth is that if you're an African-American man on a, you know, on a form and someone starts spewing racist rhetoric, you're not going to post on that form. You are having your free speech, your desire to post on that form and to contribute taken away from you. So let's, let's not act as if there is there is free speech for everyone, and then all of a sudden we take free speech away from, some, from not, some people, not, and that's I'm not saying that if you silence one group, you silence everybody. I'm just saying that if you silence one group, it could open the door to the silencing of others. That's what I'm trying I, to say. I would, I I would say we, yes, I would but I think also that has to... More directly. To address your more concern more directly, uh, I would say that if we look at other nations that have implemented hate speech laws, especially in Europe, we haven't seen something like this. In Europe, 
hate speech convictions aren't all that common. And when there are trials, they're usually long and protracted. And I would say rather than being overzealous, the governments are generally being more cautious with these prosecutions. So I think uh, one important thing to prevent what you suggest might occur is for us to err on the side of caution. I think it is uh, important for us to err on the side of caution to protect all the hate speech is, of course, vile, and I do believe should be regulated to some extent. We should err on the side of caution of protecting free speech rather than being overzealous in stamping out hate speech. So I think if we establish that paradigm, this will not be an issue, and, and this, this slippery slope uh, scenario that you propose hasn't happened anywhere yet. Well, so I mean, I, I, I would argue that this kind of stuff never really goes away. For example, in Europe, there are still so many anti-Semitic attacks happening all the time in, in Europe, especially in Western Europe. And nobody really wants to talk about it for some reason. And it, they happen so incredibly often that even in these places that have these hate speech laws, and I'm just saying, like, even if we put these in, I severely doubt uh, how much it'll actually do in the long run, and I think it's only going to hurt innocent people rather than limit the vile people who who are on the internet or who go to random rallies where they're saying you know racist stuff. I'm just saying well, that it's I probably gonna it's the, probably gonna hurt I, the innocents more than it's gonna right, hurt. Right. So I think the, the, I think what you do is you bring up an interesting point that does have some merit, which is that. When you when you are speaking out against some speech, what you are saying is that there is some speech that is unacceptable. And I understand where you're coming from, but I firmly come down on the side that, as in, in as Harry Huang said, it's not as if this is that this kind of slippery slope has happened before. But moreover, that I think the primary concern. So you brought up the fact that in Western Europe there are still plenty of anti-Semitic attacks. But I would argue that the purpose of hate speech law isn't isn't always to just you know stop anti-Semitic attacks. It is to deplatform racists and take away their ability to, you know, stimulate movements. There's a reason why, you know, France hasn't had the rising sort of blatantly neo-Nazi movement that America has. I mean, it's just, you know, you see Le Marine Le Pen, but she still has to hide behind euphemisms. But many prominent uh, far-right politicians in the U.S. actively believe in conspiracy theories like QAnon. So when you let racists platform themselves, spread their message, they will radicalize people. And that's what I'm saying, Andrew, is that I think that I'm pretty comfortable that this is not a risk that is significantly likely to come to pass. But the fact of the matter is every second where we give a racist free reign to spew their rhetoric is a second we are risking innocent people being radicalized into, you know, crazy, far-right, racist conspiracies. And, I mean, you can argue the same goes for the left. I mean, certain, certain rhetoric by very far-left people about, like, eat the rich. I'm not, I don't necessarily think they have a right to, you know, threaten rich people. But I think the critical thing is that if you allow people to be radicalized, if you say we need to protect innocence, you are already throwing some innocence under the bus, regular people who are now being exposed and radicalized by this rhetoric. But I think we really need to approach this issue from two perspectives. One is um, detailing, one is directing these, any potential legislation towards a specific hate group. Or directing a general law to all quote-unquote hateful rhetoric. I completely agree with Jason. If you are going to implement, you know, hate, uh, free speech limitations, you have to be extremely specific in what you're doing it with. Because when you well, leave it up to vagary, when you leave it up in the air, when it's not 
completely specific, it opens the door to innocent people being silenced. I'm not necessarily saying that one is better than the other. I'm saying that these two um, directions have been generally the approach of the European nations that have enacted, well, European and African nations that have enacted such legislation. Which approach really should we be discussing here? So I think we, so first of all, I think we have to look at it like what, what, what is being proposed. It's the, deep, it's the systematic deplatforming um, de of racists and specifically uh, standing out against, you know, taking, you know, like, for example, the Sea Isle. And I think with that in mind, I have a simple question to ask Andrew, which is that have innocent people, quote unquote, innocent people been hurt by Germany not allowing people to, you know, do the Sea Isle? Are innocent people being hurt by that? Uh, well, no. And the, the, well, re the reason that I say it, well, look, the reason that I say that is because your example is obviously, you know, a bit of, a bit of hyperbole and a bit of an extreme example. Is it? I mean, yes, I, I think not, not in modern Nazi, America, Nazi, I think Nazi behavior is a bit of an extreme example. Well, it doesn't again, mean it doesn't this is happen. Where I it has really permeated feel, pretty deeply into society. This is where I really feel we need to clarify what we're talking because Laws like Germany specifically target a very, very explicit group that is Nazi ideology, including Sieg Heil, the Reichsadler, uh, the Nazi battle flag, that. And then there's far more general laws like they have in France, which explicitly, well, no, which uh, ban very vague categories such as um, discrimination against a certain race, sect, or cult, uh, race, sect, or religion, and uh, any of action there yeah and, and that a... and that's the problem right right because discrimination is up to the interpreter i'm gonna take uh, i what i believe is a good example though i have a feeling y'all might disagree with me uh let's take for example uh transgender people okay all right i know a lot of conservatives kind of spout the same message and it's typically oh a man is a man and a and a woman is a woman and typically, a lot of conservatives believe that gender is the same thing as sex, and that there are only two genders, you know, male and female. Now, if, if we were to implement a discrimination law protecting transgender people, would the people saying a man is a man and a woman is a woman be, uh, be punished? Which, you know, I don't think they should be. I think that they have the perfect right to express that belief. Now, the difference is if we go for something very specific and say, for example, let's say there's this one asswipe on, on Reddit, and he is going to say, okay, transgender people are, uh, are like subhuman trash, and we should kill them all. That, I believe if targeted specifically by a law or targeted specifically by the rules of a particular website is perfectly up to being properly punished. But the first guy saying a man and a man and a woman is a woman, I don't believe deserves to be punished under a hate speech law. Right, but here we bring up the question of dog whistles. Um, say I am a racist asswipe, as you do as you just described, and um, I have a list of 500 names I can call Jewish people. And I say one day, globalists are destroying this country. We must eradicate them all. 
and the next day I say the Israelites are destroying this country, we must eradicate them all. How would we judge that? Ban what, ban the person saying that. What law can we implement to because a dog whistle in its very nature is not explicitly hate speech. It's it maintains plausible deniability. This is kind of an interesting question. I, I, I just have an interesting question. I think Andrew gave an interesting example where he said, you know, some conservatives believe a man is a man and a woman is a woman versus some, you know, there are some crazies who believe that they're just subhuman. But I might offer that perhaps rhetoric which states that there are only men and only women inherently dehumanizes those people. So that even if you're just a normal conservative who just happens to believe that a man is a man and a woman is a woman, you know, that belief does not exist in a void, because what you're saying, if you're saying a man is a man and a woman is a woman, is that they are, people are inherently lesser if they defy that traditional dichotomy. And that may not be something, and you personally may not be willing to take that to the extreme of they should be killed or they're subhuman. But I would, I would offer that perhaps that rhetoric isn't so black and white, and that so the belief of saying a man is a man and a woman is a woman feeds into, for some people, these, the idea that, you know, perhaps they're not worthy of existing because they do not fit my traditional definition. Essentially, if you build a traditional dichotomy that, ex that inherently excludes a minority, you can't be surprised if some people are going to take that too far. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, you're never going to be able to control people who take anything too far, and I don't think a law is going to be able to prevent that. And I think on the specific example of, let's say, transgenderism, I don't believe people who who say, oh, a man is a man and a woman is a woman, are inherently going to believe, oh, this transgender person, awful. Because I am, I'm of the opinion that, you know, people who have those beliefs just think you're one or the other. And people who, who say that kind of stuff, that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to treat someone who is transgender inherently worse than somebody who isn't and yeah, I, i'm not i'm not i'm not gonna say that you know radicals aren't gonna take that to the extreme because i think that could happen with any particularly strong opinion especially in in the culture that we live in at the moment with you know social media and all that kind of stuff but again i ask do the people saying a man is a man and a woman is a woman how would they be affected by a hate speech law targeting the radicals, which, in my opinion, uh, on that specific, uh, on that specific issue, are in the minority? But here's what I'm. Uh, here's what I think is that uh, the problem is, sure, you might um, somebody saying a man is man and a woman is woman uh, is a woman is not inherently bad to them. But to the transgender person hearing it, it's rather like, say, uh, say everybody categorized race in the United States as one of two categories, white and black. But I'm Asian. The fact that uh, you're calling me either a white person or a black person naturally erases my very identity. I, I don't think they're I don't think they're the same. I don't think they're the, it's the same situation. Uh, I, I agree with Andrew, but I, I also think that Jason's fundamental—I agree with Jason's fundamental point. I think Jason is taking something to something of a hyperbole, as race is obviously one of the strongest issues in American society. But I think the point is there, that that kind of rhetoric inherently delegitimizes transgender people's identities, and that, that therefore, what you're signaling to them, intentionally or not, is that they are not welcome 
to share their experiences. That they are not welcome where, wherever you, you know, you're posting this on social media. What you're saying is that a man is a man and a woman is a woman. And if you don't believe that, or miraculously, if you are a living sort of, if you live the contrary to my statement, I don't want to see you around because I don't believe you're legitimate. That's what right, you're but, saying. But unfortunately, the problem this raises is how would you ever enforce this? Because it, there is no end to phrases I could come up with to make their day absolutely horrific. Also, you, got, you have to know that... There's no legislation that... that can stop that. There's no possible legislation that can cover a category so broad. Also, you have to note that uh, banning certain le- certain uh, ideologies and certain beliefs on certain topics, such as transgenderism, you are directly deplatforming, let's say, Christians who believe that homosexuality is a sin. You're you're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. And at that point, you have to make a decision. Okay. Do I want to deplatform the Christians, or do I want to deplatform the, or do I want to indirectly deplatform transgenders on this specific, uh, on this specific issue? And what I'm saying is that putting a law in that situation is going to hurt an enormous amount of people on either side. That is going to be either intentional or not intentional and i don't think it's right to put a law in those specific in those types of specific situations because of the nature of the issue and i think that all of these issues that are the majority of these issues that we're we're trying to figure out a solution for are always going to be a gray area and that's why i believe that laws restricting free speech need to be extremely specific on what they're trying to get rid of right i think i agree that a law even even though i may not like some of the rhetoric that these people are using the problem is if you make such a general law it will inevitably end up in unfortunately a slippery slope scenario where there are simply too many groups and accounting to their individual needs would require an enormous administrative burden that's impossible to account for. And also the fact that this is government led means that at any point, any administration may come along and say, this is the new list of groups we're protecting and the groups and the rhetoric we are banning. And that sets an extremely dangerous precedent. So I I would say that, um, so both you and, and both Andrew and Jason, you guys said that we need to be ultra specific. I would say that the how we solve this problem is the opposite, actually, by being general. Obviously, at this current state, I don't think we should regulate rhetoric that is ambiguous according to our current societal standards. Like a man is a man, a woman is a woman. That's ambiguous right now, as as we've just shown, because we had a debate about that. Now, obviously, there's other rhetoric that's very unambiguous, advocating directly advocating for genocide or saying that one group is subhuman. That's unambiguous. And perhaps as societal mores change, perhaps the statement, a man is a man, a woman is a woman, will become an unambiguous, much as saying something like seek hell is unambiguous now. And to for a law, for the letter of a law to reflect changes in society, I think is impossible. I think the only organ of the state that can do that is the judiciary. 
the judiciary, I think, will need to have evolving interpretations of a general hate speech law. So that so the judiciary that the groups we have deemed utterly abhorrable will change over time. Maybe 70 years down the line, the Nazis will be a distant blip in history that we will have long forgotten about. Well, maybe not the Nazis specifically, but I mean, I, I agree with Harry. And I honestly, I think that's, he makes a very powerful point that oftentimes if you, if you get so specific, what you end up doing is very little. That at the end of the day, I think Harry's right that a broad law that you know, allows for evolving interpretations is in the end a much more potent law than a law that specifically names like you can't perform Nazi actions. Well, the Nazis are not the only heinous group. And many people will be like, well, I'm not specifically, I might be regurgitating, you know, Nazi rhetoric. I might be constantly acting like a Nazi, but I'm not, I'm within the law because the law is inherently inflexible to what the context is. So if you make the law so specific, you don't end up solving the problem. You just force people to, you know, stretch the law, move around a little bit, but you're not actually stopping them from being hateful. Because again, if you, like, I have a question for you. Your hyper-specific law that is going to make sure that no innocent person's free speech is infringed upon, what does that look like, Jason? Where, what does it look like? What, are you naming um, groups? Would, are you naming ideologies? I would, I would take the example of laws already passed in Germany and South Africa, especially in Germany, where they, uh, specific symbols and specific words have been banned. Uh, certain readings like uh, Mein Kampf, um, the Reichsadler, the Nazi battle flag, as I've stated, and generally any... Right, right. I understand. ...relating to Hitler or the historical World War II um, Nazi Reich. I understand the model, but I'm asking you the question of what would you ban in America? Uh, for example, some... Um, Symbols relating to the Confederacy. Would you uh, ban? Would you ban the symbol of the Confederacy? Could you even the, do that? The, that, con- the, the modern state, interpretation of the Confederate flag. Yes. The real one or the not the real one. The one everyone uses. The flag. The, the the stars and stripes. The stars yeah. and bars. The stars and bars. Stars and bars. bars. Bruh, uh, bruh. The stars and stripes. Whoops. Can't ban the stars and stripes. Bars. Bruh. But see, I think that's, that's, that's where I think that's, that's the underlying question there, Jason, right? Which is that it's not so easy, but moreover, so are you going to ban the stars and bars? And will, is that even a real, is that a realistic solution? Much of the South is very attached to the stars and bars. Well, none of the proposals we have been suggesting so far would be realistic at all in our current political climate. Right, but I would argue that, you know, a, a broad anti-hate speech law is still, like, you know what's going to happen because the same thing happened with the Confederate monuments. They, everyone makes the slippery slope arguments and says, you know, what's next? Are we pulling down Thomas Jefferson and George Washington next? I'm very defensive. It's my heritage. And you're going to get into that same, you know, sort of, you're going you're gonna to fall into that same miasma of just constantly right, but any mud, law banning, mudslinging. But, but any, any law will come under accusations of ascension to destroying heritage, whatever. Right. But what I'm saying is that your law does not, that what you're proposing essentially and then so so are all symbols of the confederacy banned where do you draw that line right so for example uh, i mean symbols relating perhaps displaying a historical museum is perfectly allowable but in all other cases any symbol related to the confederacy or any, any symbol related to the confederacy it, it, it's unreal any symbol and, and look here here's the problem with uh here, here's the problem with, with banning 
something either so broad or something extremely specific. So the reason why well, I believe <laughs> like super broad is is gonna screw you over in the long run is that it's you can't project change. Uh, a yes, law, a some... law cannot project how culture is going to change because culture is constantly changing. It changes, hell, it changes month to month. Let's be honest, and you, a, a, a law of judiciaries can't predict that. Also, on the subject of of your example, Harry, of what if we ban all all Confederate symbols? I, I would like to point that out, but before you, I I'm not interrupting just to say that that was jason's proposal oh like yeah, he specifically yeah, yeah stated yeah, yeah. D- jason so your example Harry's afraid of being dogs anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm very afraid <laughs> uh, no but anyway yes continue my my issue with let's say outright banning all everything related to the confederacy is that i view that specific type of symbol as an as an example of american history so, for example, right, if you want to tear down a Robert E. Lee statue, the reason why I believe that it should stand is because I believe it is a symbol of how at one point in America, America was founded in wonderful ideals, and men like Robert E. Lee are a shining example of how we, whoa, we whoa, fail. Whoa, whoa. Wait, Robert, let, me whoa, let me finish. Let me finish. Let me finish. Let me finish. All right. All right. I, Robert E. Lee is a, is a shining example of how America failed to initially meet those ideals for so many people. Mm-hmm. But he's also an example of how we have right. moved past yeah. that and how but we have statues, bettered ourselves statues after Statues isn't that. how we record history. Statues is how we glorify history. When you go to Germany, you wouldn't see statues of Himmler or Goering or Hitler. Statues, it's not really related. I mean, I agree. I, I understand where you're coming from, Andrew, and I don't disagree that Robert E. Lee should be very well remembered instead as a complex man who shouldn't be demonized as a total traitor, but also should certainly not be worshipped. And I agree that, you know, uh, certainly these should be in a museum. But I think when you, what, what I, I would he ask a belong question. in a museum. These were not, first of all, these were not put up during the Civil War. They were put up in an era in which Southern whites were reasserting control of the South. And what, what a statue of a man who fought and put his life on the line to preserve slavery. If you put that in a public place, what are you telling to the average black person? You're yeah, saying, ma- we are glorifying yeah, a man ma- who fought to keep you as property. In my That's opinion, what you're saying. You're, in my opinion, what you're doing... Topic. Let's not get this in this episode. I don't... This really shouldn't be part of this topic. Yeah, I'll, I'll, <laughs> just, I'll just finish up with one final point, and then we can move on. Uh, in my opinion, what you're saying to, to a certain group of people is that there was a point in time where we did glorify somebody like this, and we have moved past that, and we have bettered ourselves after this. And he, well, and this man is a shining example of how we have improved ourselves and moved past the time where somebody like this was glorified. That is what, in my opinion, it, it, it means for certain symbols to keep standing. Also, like on the example of, let's say, the Confederate battle flag, uh, several several people in the South view it as a symbol of their heritage, and uh, more and than ha- several. Yeah, I mean, tons of people down South really value that flag because they view it as, uh, a, you know, a symbol of Southern pride, of uh, a symbol of how their their forefathers 
fought for their land. Now, granted, it's for a terrible reason. I'm not defending that. But it, even there's even several black people down south who fly the Confederate flag because they view it as, you know, their forefathers were fought, were forced to fight in the Southern Confederacy and how they ended up being free in the end. You yeah. know what, Andrew? I want to take that and I want to run with that. Let's let's turn away from the statues debate. And I want to point something out to Jason. So Jason's specific stuff, I want to name a specific policy so that I avoid, you know, having a two broad law. So I'm going to ask you a simple question. When it comes to Germany banning Nazi imagery, the Nazis yeah. were in power for a very short time, and the immediate aftermath was the breakup of Germany. And while there were so, the anti-Nazi movements were very strong in Germany in the post-war context. So right. on a certain level, is the Confederacy too ingrained in American and specifically Southern culture to make a clean break with it in the way the Germans did with the swastika or the Sea Heil? Because, like, for example, Andrew brought up a specific... Uh... Is it a realistic policy to say to Southerners, you can't fly the Confederate battle flag? Because what, no, I can say what I think is right, but I'm asking you, if we're asking from a pure policy perspective, is it realistic to specifically ban flying Confederate symbols that have to certain people taken on a new meaning? And again, we can debate what's morally right, but I'm asking you, what's realistic? Is that a realistic policy? Well, I would say compared to examples in, say, South Africa, where there has been a consistent movement on part of the um, white population to preserve um, apartheid South Africa and its whatever culture can be said of that era. And I don't think the denazification movement in Germany was as strong as you claim, because uh, even though most of Germany has accepted that they have this enormous... Uh, burden upon their history, enormous blot, but a, a sizable minority re simply refuses to accept that their nation conducted these horrific crimes against humanity, these atrocities. I think that it is simply a reality that nations have had to confront their legacy. They have to confront the debt in blood they have writ for themselves. I, I, I think you underestimate the denazification movement, um, and specifically that I, I do genuinely think that most Germans agree that the Nazis did horrible things and that the sizable minorities overstated. But regardless, I think bringing up apartheid South Africa is another interesting example. But let me ask you a simple question. Did, was, was the apartheid regime removed by a bloody civil war? Um, no. no it was, but I'm, there was a I'm... compromise. And you know what? You know what? I might even still argue. Uh, that the symbols of apartheid South Africa should be destroyed. But there's a critical difference between flying the battle flag of a nation that committed treason against the Union and fought to preserve people as property and flying the flag of a regime that, however evil, willingly stepped down. That's, again, not to defend apartheid I South Africa, but to mean, say that this, the yes, symbols do have a different meaning. And so, again, what the you think is that only benefits my claim. These are literal traitors against the Union. This is... Right, but they're not going to change. They're not going to... Southern people aren't just going to say, oh, well, you... Oh, man, that sucks. I guess I will stop flying the Confederate battle flag. They're I mean, very that, attached to it. That's what the South African people said about apartheid. That's what the British people said about the legacies of their empire. And yet they have all committed consistent action to erase... Well, what I'm asking you is a, is a specific law that bans flying the Confederate battle flag. Do you think that's going to be an effective law? Do you think that's a realistic law in any... Because change happens slowly. 
in many ways. I think with so, do you think I you think, can just break the South of its bad cultural habit, basically? I think by, I mean, with a slow process of escalation and educational resources provided, there could be a systematic road paved to such legislation. But obviously, that's not, that's not a hate. That's not against it. That's not a specific hate law. All you're doing is telling black people who are uncomfortable with the Confederate battle flag, oh, don't worry, you know, 50 years down the line, maybe we'll start phasing it out. That's not really the kind of robust action. And now you can see where you have to make a trade-off on a certain level, where you can't have your clean, specific laws that will never step on anyone's toes. Because the truth is, either right. you have to but choose a, between the effectiveness general, of the law. But a, but a general law will be opposed even more because the general law is far more broad, and it may possibly be unconstitutional. So what I'm asking you, Jason, is you proposed a law, a specific law in which you would ban all symbols of the Confederacy. But now you're telling me yes. you need to wait and we need to we need to have an education drive. So tell me, well, when I, is the, when are those Confederate symbols getting banned? Are they getting banned now when the law is passed? In the, like, as I, soon as the law is passed? Do we have to wait 50 years? Do we wait 20 years? Well, How long okay, does it okay. take before those hateful symbols are removed? I would say take the example of France, which had a long history of dealing with its... Uh, Little nasty World War II habit of uh, collaborators and collaboratrices. How do you pronounce that? Collaboratrices. Yeah, it's basically collaborateur. Yeah, I mean. And of, of collaborateur and collaboratrice. And they've phased uh, that out through a long process of cultural integration that happened within 10 years. They also brutally uh, executed a lot of the collaborators. I mean, there there was the execution yeah, of Pierre Laval, which was expl- which was especially gruesome. So, I mean, that's one big difference is that we I mean, also fought a bloody civil war to remove. But at the end of the day, Confederate leadership remained largely intact and was able to build a lost cause myth in which they pretended that they were justified, which again means that most people in France agree that even if they're far right and they don't necessarily disagree with Vichy on sort of like ideological terms, they agree that they were traitors to France. But the fact of the matter is that, again, it's sort of hard to compare when you look at it like there are people in the South who genuinely think the Confederacy did not, were not like traitors to the Union. And that you can be a patriotic American, but be proud of the Confederacy. And that's the difference, is that, again, you don't have that difference. The Vichy France was the product of a German occupation of northern France. Therefore, it's very easy for even very far-right people who might not even disagree with a lot of Vichy policies to say, well, they weren't a real French government, they were the product of the German occupation. But because the South not only was able to, not only created the Confederacy in and of itself, but also was given basically a century to rewrite history so that it was cleaner and more convenient for them, it's not such a clean break. Even, it's not even as clean a break as Vichy France is for France. Well, look, Harry, I think, I think you're, you're running with the example of like, hey, uh, a specific law might not do much, but what would your general law be able to do against... The, the specific example of, uh, let's say, uh, the Confederate symbols. How do you, I could say the same to you about how, oh, the general law, is, it, is everything going to be banned immediately? And if so, how are you going to, you know, convince proud Southerners to remove their flag? Because if you're just going to take it all away at once, you know there are going to be so many people who are just going to say, Screw what the government's telling me. I'm being. I'm gonna continue to be proud of my heritage. I think that's an interesting point, and I think that there's certainly a lot to be said for the fact that um, I would argue that a general law is much more about setting a judicial precedent and saying, like, for example, you don't get to fly a Confederate flag in public space. You know, you don't get to have a Confederate statue. That's just on a certain level, you know, illegal and wrong, and it's clearly demonstrating hate speech. 
But I do agree that no law is going to immediately phase out all imi- all sort of images of the Confederacy. This mainline, this argument was mainly a response to Jason, who specifically named getting rid of all Confederate symbols as something he could do with his law. Basically, I'm saying you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't tell me that my law is big and unrealistic, but also that you're going to get rid of all the symbols of the Confederacy. So again, I'm not saying well, my, I think I'm not that, saying my solution is a panacea. It's not a cure-all that's going to fix everything. Just that I, I was mostly it was mostly a response to what Jason said. But yes, I do agree that on a certain level oh. there. Are certain levels of the, you know, for example, the Confederacy that is so that is so ingrained in American society that you have to address that with more nuance. I think I think it would be inaccurate to equate what you're proposing, which was a very general, highly, and possibly administratively and enforcement-wise impossible and possibly unconstitutional legislation with. Whoa, 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 be... whoa, whoa! We're just going to toss in a lot of the uns, aren't we? Unenforceable, unconstitutional. Mm. Well, yes, because I, that is perhaps the reality of any such proposal. And and um, a re-educational campaign, while it would take... Wait, so we're, wait, we're re-educating time. people now? I mean, is that what we're doing? An education campaign. Excuse me. <laughs> no, but I mean, I ask you a question here, which is that, how, how would that even work? So what you're saying is we need to, like, literally teach the entire South its history all over again. But even in Southern textbooks today, this Confederacy is often glorified. So how would that uh, even work? Textbook reform is not necessarily impossible. Uh, Japan had a incredibly uh, recent incident with where a group of legislators and uh, retired legislators effectively remodeled educational system, especially historical education in a certain part of the country, to... Essentially, erase the war crimes of Japan during World War Two. But yeah, it's a lot easier to been, erase war crimes and also those, demand settle. But but those textbooks have been removed. Those, even though those legislators haven't been, you know, criminally punished. The thing is that that influence has now been curbed from from the schools in those specific prefectures. A similar thing could be done in the South. But again, it's not children who are going out and opposing this, so it's great if a new generation of Southern children are taught the real history of the Confederacy, but I'm asking. No, no, but, these... but, it, but it wasn't children opposing it in this case either. It was people who reasonably... How is your that... education campaign going to stop Southern resistance to removing the Confederate battle flag? That's my blunt it's, question. It's not going to in the immediate implementation, but then again, no plan really is. What's it's your plan? Going, Give me a time to... frame. And uh, five and years, in which case we can place nearly all uh, curriculum textbooks in, in history, in particularly the Deep South and especially the Confederate states, the former Confederate states, and not a general informational campaign about the truth of the Confederacy and mm-hmm. obviously tear down Confederate. Well, Harry Huang, I think he's trying to. Yeah, Go ahead. okay. What I would say is I don't think we should be engaging in any sort of educational campaign to bring people in line with laws. What I would envision this hate speech law is something, perhaps a constitutional amendment, the 28th constitutional amendment, um, hate speech shall not be covered by the First Amendment, intentionally very vague. And it will be the role of the judiciary to interpret that amendment as society changes. There is no way I don't think it's feasible for 
the legislature to pass any law that's ahead of social mores. Like, for example, if you were to have a hate speech law in medieval Europe, it's unlikely that you would be able to cover anti-Semitism. And so the Confederate flag would probably not be banned entirely because as society stands today, the judiciary and the public would probably not have the appetite to do that, but society is going in a certain direction. It's probably going to go in the direction that's probably going to reach a point where it's generally agreed upon in society that should be banned. Uh, but uh, the problem is uh, such a constitutional amendment is fundamentally impossible because, one, a constitutional amendment has the, has incredibly stringent requirements in terms of approval in the Congress. You're saying that you're going to re-educate the entire South on the Confederacy, so I think realism is kind of out the window on these plans here. Yeah, yeah Jason, I think we need to fiat this. Perhaps. In right, the like... U.S., all this courts have extensively ruled that hate speech law is pretty much all unconstitutional. So the only way they're going to be able to do it is a constitutional amendment. So you have right. to fiat right. this. Okay. Sure. Um, but I would, also, I would also like to point out one thing that I think Harry has a really good point about what gives this law kind of longevity. And it's sort of asking, what do you want the policy to do? And on a certain level, I think Harry's, policy, Harry's proposal is probably the best because it has longevity. It will have implications right. long after it's written. But if you just specifically ban one symbol, then what's going to happen the next time another racist symbol pops up? People are going to say, oh, well, you know, we banned bad symbols. Here's an example of a bad symbol we banned, but this one isn't nearly as bad, so you can't ban it. The truth is that the best laws are the ones that are applicable. But eventually, you will have to define what hate speech means. Eventually, you will have to come down from that general, very general, broad, purposefully vague definition. And you, and when you need to enforce that constitutional amendment, you will have to define what hate speech means. And that's when you will run into a multitude of problems, including censorship. Hate speech, hate speech is inherently going to forever be vague, and it's forever not going to be completely definable. That is why a specific law banning a specific action or symbol or whatever is, in my opinion, the best way to go about things. Because if you just say, oh, X thing is hate speech, well, somebody could pop by and say, well, since it's open to interpretation, is Y hate speech? And if Y is hate speech, what about Z? Is that hate speech too? You need to be clearly defined when you do define what you want your hate speech law to do. And because hate speech is naturally not really definable, I think tons of hate speech restrictions are just either A, going to be unconstitutional, or B, if they're too broad, you can't really enforce when an innocent person is affected because of something an idiot said that was the target of the initial law put in place. Well, I would say that's the role of the judiciary to interpret the law in specific cases. So let's say, for example, we have this new constitutional amendment and the judiciary interprets it in this case to mean that Confederate flags are banned. And then in, there's one case where, say, someone makes a little historical exhibit with a Confederate flag and there's a court case about it. And then the judiciary changes its interpretation, decides there's an exception for educational purposes. The it would be the role of the judiciary to flesh out the nuances of this law. And you know what? I, Just... I, I, get, I get what you're trying to say, Harry. But 
let's be honest here, is everything just going to go to the judiciary? And let's yes. be, and again, if everything goes to the judiciary, how they're just going to be overswamped with stuff that was vaguely defined in the original law that it's just the the enforcement level that's necessary is just simply unrealistic. Yes, well, any, the... a, a, any regulation as such, obviously the Supreme Court will be even the local courts, the judiciary would, assuming uh, the judiciary would have to review every single use case, that's impossible on many levels. Like how are well, you go? How are you I, going to to send to, to the judiciary hundreds of anti-Semitic comments on a Reddit thread? How how are you? It's go- all about precedent. That's, the judiciary yeah. will establish precedent. They just have to rule out one case, and that establishes precedence for all cases similar to that. Right, but then you're forcing the judiciary to effectively play whack-a-mole, and they will have to. And the problem is the frequency of these cases will likely overwhelm any judicial system that's supposedly equipped to handle this. Well, I would I mean, disagree with obviously the Supreme Court can't... Let, Supreme the, poor court man, can't let the poor man defend system. his position, Jason. How, would you not say the whole system of the Supreme Court in the United States is whack-a-mole then? Something happens that someone may consider a violation of the Constitution and they bring it to the judiciary and it goes up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court decides. Right, That's whack-a-mole, according to your there's... definition. I don't see a problem here. It's just there's, an extra constitutional amendment for the Supreme far, Court and the judiciary far, to interpret. There's far different degrees. The Supreme Court, the cases it typically accepts in this modern in age, is usually issues that will leave a significant. Are you saying hate speech is insignificant? That's an interesting no, point. What I'm, what I mean, I'm what saying, I'm saying, I think hey, what, what Harry's proposing is a broad, effective policy, and your response is, well, the current judicial system will be swamped by it, therefore the judiciary would have to do its job. So why well, not just I'm, have a bad policy saying, that doesn't solve the problem and give the judiciary a day off? That's what, because like, that's what the judiciary's job is, setting precedent and solving problems within society by interpreting the laws we write. That's the job of the judiciary. So yeah, I agree with Harry, and I agree with you. If the judiciary has to play whack-a-mole, yes, that's the judiciary's do- job. That's what they're there for. They but exist what I'm, what I'm, what for I'm that. Saying, what I'm saying is that some decisions will be far too minor. For example, say somebody sues over a, a particularly poisonous conversation they found on Parlor, and they want... In United States v. Parlor, they want to ban a very specific use case of this language. The judiciary is simply not prepared for every single A through Z to infinity that it would be asked to preside over. Well, even, another thing I'd point out is that not all of these necessarily. I mean, precedent is certainly powerful, but precedent is precedent is up to interpretation. Well, yes, precedent is up to interpretation. Everything in the judiciary is up to interpretation, but precedent sets, there's a lot less wiggle room with precedent, and judges are generally inclined to follow precedent. And the Supreme Court doesn't necessarily have to decide all these cases. For example, in your case that you propose, U.S. First Parlor, I know that, let's say it happens in, the, in Maine, a local court in Maine, the Maine Supreme Court or something, can decide that case and establish precedent. It may not be a strong precedent as a Supreme Court case, but still precedent. And I doubt for just some threat on Reddit or Parlor, it's going to be challenged. And so there you have there you have it. You have precedent. And 
as time goes on, more and more precedent builds up and more and more hate speech is covered to eventually to the point that uh, there isn't much new precedent that needs to be made. Or um, so the judiciary is freed up to be able to re-litigate uh, previous precedent uh, according to changing societal mores. I have a question for uh, you, Jason and Andrew, you of the hyper-specific policy uh, advocates. So what, so what Harry seems to have proposed is essentially a policy that will be a long-term solution, one that moves with society. Do you have any response to that? Is there any way in which your policy has sort of a response to that specific advantage? My, my issue with it is that you can't predict how society is going to change over time. Uh, right, but, but the law isn't predicting. The law is simply leaving the power within what is making up society, specifically the judiciary, to then make that decision within the context of the right. society. It's not predicting right. anything. What I'm saying is that that solution naturally leaves up to judicial bias and also what? issues of censorship inherently. So again, Jason, you keep naming this. So tell me about this judicial bias that will be incurred by using the judiciary for its intended purpose. Well, I'm, I'm curious because you keep saying is, judicial bias, but what is what do you mean by that? I want to hear a specific. The thing is, in a issue, if we go beyond hyper specific definitions, hate speech can be defined as quite literally everything. And oh. that, yeah, that is that. It's the issue with leaving everything up to interpretation is that. It's an it's an innate gray area in which, in which I I case... usually do not use these kinds of slippery slope arguments, but in this case, it is, mm -hmm. it is fundamentally un it is fundamentally unavoidable. Thing is that any thing is the judiciary has never been truly free of political influence in our nation's history. And, and so we should just not so we should just not use no, it. No, but the problem is in a such a politically charged issue as. This one, the inherent political biases of any judicial court will set a precedent that, one, may contradict with other courts, and two, is, is inherently re reflecting the political meanings of the judge presiding over it. See, what I'm seeing here, Jason, is that putting aside your point, what you did is you pivoted. I asked you a specific question. Harry designed his policy specifically so that it could be applicable in the long term. But your policy is a short-term solution. It's a band-aid to, to remove one hate group. You, do you have any response for the long-term applicability of your policy? Or do you just, like, that's my question, right? My specific question is, Harry has a law that in his own proposal could right. reasonably continue to be applicable into the future. What I, what do, you do you have that? Do you have that? Do you have that? Okay, Harry. Should... Does your policy have that? I'm asking a question. Yes or no? I am raising concerns about his policy. Right, that's which, great. Which I, which please I say... raise your concerns, but just please give me a yes or no answer. I feel like you're rhetorically backing me into a corner. I'm afraid I am rhetorically backing you into a corner of answering a yes or no question on whether your policy has a long-term solution. Does and it or does it not? And you're not allowing me to explain the nuances of my argument. I say that Harry's policy is fundamentally well, is fundamentally unmaintainable. Right, but I'm has, not. But we're not talking about Harry's policy right now. We're talking about your policy. 
See, I'm glad that you think Harry's policy is unmaintainable. Maybe what I'm it is. Saying but is what I'm that, asking you is not saying, about his policy. It's about his what I'm policy. saying, what I'm saying is that my policy is a compromise solution that reflects the realities. Even if it is a band aid, it can so Band-Aids it's not be, solving the problem long term. That's what you're saying. Band-Aid, Band-Aids can be continually applied because bandage is simply impossible to enforce. You will never find a bandage large enough. You will never find a bandage thick enough. You will never, you will never find a solution that will work under that scenario. Okay, so what you're saying is that there is no long-term solution to hate speech, so we should just constantly... So what you're saying is that we should consistently... Okay, that's distorting my rhetoric. No, what you're, you're saying is that you specifically said there's no bandit large enough, which I interpret as there's no long-term perfect solution that we can apply for hate speech. So what yes, I would argue is that true. you yourself no has said person. that the judiciary is very much affected by political t- occurrence, but wouldn't that be the same thing except more intense for your solution? So for example, let's say for some reason the, po- the nation sweeps in a far-right government, and they say, you know what, Nazi imagery ain't that bad. We're going to knock it over. See, constitutional amendment... That's something that stays in place for a long time. Judicial precedent, listen, the judiciary isn't perfectly unbiased, but it's far less biased than the legislature. So if you're concentrating power in the legislature, then wouldn't it be completely feasible for certain governments to take power and say, this group is, this group is, this group is, or this group isn't, we're going to take this away. So wouldn't the judiciary be at least less biased than your solution, which is to name names? Because as you said yourself, the solution, your sort of long-term solution is to constantly apply new band-aids. But who's applying those new band-aids? In Harry's solution, it's the judiciary. In your solution, it's the legislature, which is popularly elected. Doesn't that seem like that would be more inconsistent than the quote-unquote biased judiciary? Right, but these band-aids can select groups that should be, in any case, reprehensible under any terms. It's the Nazis or... But will every government do that? But will they do that? That's my question. If if a government openly comes out in support of Nazism, then... I would like to say that we have no America left to speak of. Right, but what if, say for example, there's a, mm, I don't know, let's take for example, a, there's a far-right group, I don't know, let's, let's, mm, I'm trying to think, mm, Kekistan is taken as a symbol of hate, right? Because it is. Uh, or Kekistan, let's go with that. But then let's say a new government sw- is swept into power, and that, and that leader, that president, president, President Kek, says, you know what? <laughs> Christ. Kekistan okay. isn't a symbol of hate. It's a symbol of Kek. Therefore, I don't have to ban it. And so you repeal that. You knock that back. You peel off that band-aid. And all of a sudden, all that protection's gone. So what I'm saying is that your solution is not a long-term solution if, unless you're assuming that all American governance is stable and consistent and is moving forward. You assume that progress will be made to apply that band-aid. At least... I assume certain press... I assume certain... Unspoken rules in American jurisprudence and political life that will never be broken unless they directly threaten the very fabric and foundation of what is America. So, but what I'm saying is that by that logic, wouldn't it be better to rely on judicial impartiality? If a a government comes into power that advocates for Nazis, if a government comes into power that advocates for the KKK, then then what we are talking of is not America we... We used to stand in a couple years ago, or the America we should be standing in, but um, a white ethnostate. And at that point, I'm out of here. Right. But what I'm saying is that if we did apply that, you know, see, a constitutional amendment isn't so easy to overturn. One particularly radical government wouldn't overthrow decades of judicial precedent, whereas one particularly radical government could undo all the progress Um, your laws made. Are you certain? 
Listen, I'm not... amendments have been repealed before. Yes, they have been. Especially by radical governments, especially by radical shifts it's in n- governance. It's far, far more difficult to repeal an amendment than it is to just knock back laws that, have not, that are not tied to the Constitution. What I'm saying, is, what that I'm saying no is that no law is a perfect, you know, it's invincible to a radical government. Sure, but the solution that Harry is proposing is simple, and it applies to, ju- uh, to the judiciary, which is far yes. more independent, impartial, and less likely to be swept up in I a admit, radical government than your I solution. admit the judiciary is far, less in, is far more impartial than the legislature, but what I'm also saying is that Harry's solution, though simple, lasting, is fundamentally unmaintainable, compromises too much, and has systemic problems that render it impossible to be enforced. And that is my claim. It's not that Harry's policy is somehow. Um, it's not that Harry's policy is somehow gonna going to endure less than mine. It's somehow going to be less complicated than mine. That's his fundamental argument. His his entire proposal rests on simplicity and longevity. But what I'm saying is that reducing a proposal to that big of a degree exposes it to fundamental and critical problems. That's an interesting point, but I would, I would respond with, like, for to use your own metaphor, wouldn't therefore the legislature be playing whack-a-mole with extremist groups itself, then deciding who is too radical and must have their, you know, iconography banned? I mean, theoretically, presumably, new hate groups are going to be recognized in a new legislature, right? I'm not saying it's a good solution, or I'm not saying it's a perfect solution, or even a good solution. I'm saying that it's the only solution that is actually long-term, maintainable, and enforceable. So you don't solve the problem, but you're saying that Harry's solution, which would theoretically solve the problem, is too simplistic. The problem is the problem is too vague, too large to ever be completely solved. So don't ever try and solve it. Just take half measures. That's what you're saying, essentially, is that Harry is swinging for the fences, trying to solve a big problem, and you're saying, my, my solution doesn't solve the problem, but he doesn't take a big swing. So, therefore, mm-hmm. I'll look less stupid when I strike out, but I'm still striking out. The problem is, okay, let's use your baseball metaphor. The problem with Harry Huang, uh, with Harry, okay, the problem with Harry Huang's proposal is that he is using an enormous bat that is guaranteed to strike out of the ballpark every time he tries to use it. I think... You're not even not... swinging. That's the difference. Yes, you're absolutely right, Jason. My, you could argue bat. that Jason's unrealistic. You're, you don't have a bat. You don't even try and swing. Maybe you have a perfect bat, but no, you but don't swing at all. By targeting specific organizations, I am far from not swinging at all. I am, yes, I am using a far smaller, far weaker bat, one that will hit consistently will be within the ballpark, even though it may not make home runs, even though it may not, even though it may not solve the fundamental problem. It is a enforceable solution and perhaps the most stringent enforceable solution we have. Again, I feel as if that metaphor isn't quite completely accurate because, again, your entire argument is predicated on, well, I mean, the, at the end of the day, if a government decides that a certain group isn't radical anymore for whatever reason, then what happens? Then the bat just disappears. Harry's bat would be backed by decades of judicial precedents, a constitutional amendment. That's, you know, that's not just something you can throw away. Certainly, it's possible to remove, but it's a, hell, it's a whole 
hell of a lot more difficult to get rid of decades of judicial precedent and a constitutional amendment than it is a hate speech law that the past administration implemented. So I feel we have reached an sort of an impasse in this discussion. I think it's time for our closing statements. It is my belief that Harry's proposal, while idealistically uh, complete, is fundamentally far too vague and far-reaching to have any real effect due to the administrative constitutional. What I am proposing is a, um, though perhaps not long-term solution, band-aid that can be repeatedly applied is practical and can target specific groups and perform a more surgical strike rather than a, a widespread attack that leaves itself open to several vulnerabilities. And what I'm proposing on the contrary would be a constitutional amendment that, although broad, uh, would allow the judiciary to interpret the amendment with the changing tides of society not just with the the year-to-year changes in the national government, but with the grand strokes of societal change in America, as opposed to um, a law that would have to be changed regularly by a partisan legislature. Well, it remains fundamentally up to the listener to decide which one of us is right. So, all right, thank you all for joining me in this discussion today. This episode, along with all other episodes of The Roundtable, are available on all major streaming platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Catch our new episodes every Saturday. And as always, stay in, stay healthy, stay safe.